Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. And we're on the Lock 22 Network here. It's always Saturday night. And I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, actor Brett Cullen. Currently portraying Lakers executive Bill Sharman on HBO's Winning Time series, and a veteran of countless film and television performances, including the part of Capcom 1 in Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Welcome, Brett. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want, uh, to get in, I want to get into Apollo 13 in a bit, but as is kind of a thing with me on this podcast, I always start by asking the guests to tell me about their youth and whether they were in a movie-going family. No, not really. Uh, my family did not. I mean, we'd go to the drive-in occasionally. I had an aunt, my Aunt Tony, who once took us to a thing called The Mask that scared the daylights out of me. I've never in my life been as scared as I was watching this movie. And I, I never even tried to look it up. I'm sure it's... But it's, some, it's, hor it's a horror film. And she's like smoking her cigarettes in San Antonio like, it's fine, kids, and we're all bawling our heads off. So, <laughs> uh, um, but um, no, I mean, I think the first movie I ever saw that like moved me, that made me like go in my room and cry was Old Yeller. I think we all saw Old Yeller and started crying. You just don't yeah. kill a dog in a movie. That's a, you can kill 50,000 soldiers in a battle. Nobody yeah. winks an eye, but you kill one good looking dog. Yeah. It's, oh, it's sure. over. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I became, you know, I was an athlete. I played baseball. I was a pitcher and a shortstop. And everyone thought I was one of the bigs. And I also surfed all my life. I've surfed since I was eight and I still surf and I'm 66 now. So um, the thing about it was I, I, when I was in college, I started discovering theater. I started really going to the movies. I mean, like I went to the first Star Wars and stood in line for three hours to get a ticket, you know, and I used to plan my schedule in college. I mean, because I, I went for five years. So sometimes I do Tuesdays and Thursdays, sometimes Monday, Wednesday and Fridays. And the off days, I'd go to the movie theaters to see films, you know, and that was back in the mid 70s. Uh, I graduated in 79, so I'd see stuff like Mean Streets and, you know, films like that, that you just kind of go, I, I want to do that. I, I want I want to be De Niro, you know, and uh, obviously I'm not, but, you know, it's what the goal was, you know, is to be that kind of now sort you, of actor. That, you, had a, you had a mentor at the University of Houston named Cecil Pickett. Cecil Pickett. Cecil Pickett. Yeah. Tell me he how he, me. he taught Randy and Dennis Quaid. He taught Brent Spiner. He taught Tommy Schlamy. He taught so many people. Anna Lee Jeffries. Uh, there's so many people in New York. Uh, Tommy Hollis, who won Emmys. I mean, uh, Tonys, I'm sorry. Who, you know, he had such a great influence on actors out of the University of Houston. And actually, Randy Quaid was going to University of Houston. He went from Bel Air High School, where Cecil taught. Then he went to Houston Baptist College and then University of Houston. And Brent and Andy, I mean, Brent and Randy and all these guys followed him. And they were casting uh, the last picture show. And Mr. Pickett told him to go knock on the director's door, Peter Bogdanovich, which he did because he could. The casting director wouldn't let him in, wouldn't let him audition. And Peter Bogdanovich took one look at him and went, come in here. 
<laughs> so that's how his career started. And when people would come to Houston or in Texas or even in the Southwest to direct the film, they'd always call Cecil to say, who's good? I mean, he had that much moxie and, and was probably, I've worked with, uh, I think, two geniuses as, as far as teachers go in my life. And he was one. And the other was Kim Stanley. Oh, sure. Of course, the great actress. Yeah. Great acting teacher, too. Now, it's funny you should mention the last picture show, because when I hear about people growing up in Texas, I always picture that small town movie theater. But you were a Houston boy, right? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. Yeah, I grew up over what they call Willow Meadows, which was, uh, you know, I lived right across the street from my elementary school. I played baseball behind the school and at Homeco Park. Um, it was, you know, it was a great, you know, our neighborhood was full of kids. So we would have in the summer, it was kick the can or capture the flag with like 25 kids, you know, until my mother would call at 1030 and go, Boys, kind of bad, you know, and then we'd all go. <laughs> now, you, you said you were a ball player. How far did you get? I played till I was 18, but about the age of 16, my arm started to hurt because when I was uh, 10, I made the 12 year old all star team. And my father, God bless his soul and trying to do the right thing, brought out the now I'm aging myself, the Colt 45s pitching coach who taught me how to throw curveballs and drop balls and uh sliders and stuff from my elbow which you shouldn't do at that age so by the time i was 16 17 my arm was starting to hurt every after about three innings i every pitch was like someone hit my funny bone in my elbow and back then they didn't have the um tommy john surgery so i just kept playing until i was in college i was actually in theater school at that point and um my father asked me to try out for the University of Houston baseball team, who whom I played in City League. City League is what they have, like at Rice University, San Jack, which is the best junior college baseball program at the time. University of Houston, all these different places, Katy. And we would, it was a bunch of guys. I mean, I had hair down to my waist, you know, and like, you know, <laughs> Alperin. Wait, 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 wait a second. I, I cannot picture you with hair down to your waist. I, I, you were I, a hippie? No, I was a surfer, dude. You're a, big a surfer. Difference. Big difference. I'll show you a photo on here for you. The audience can't see it, but that was me when I was 17. Where is okay, it? So everybody were, oh my God, he looks like a god. Oh my God. You were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just a colleague, you know. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Except Jeff, I didn't Jeff, get high. I wasn't a stoner. Um, Jeff Piccoli with some pecs there. You were looking very uh, etched. Um, you know, it's yeah. funny. Um, Texas boys just seem to have an edge on everybody else in the country because you guys are, you know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but you're kind of referred to as a man's man, you know, manliness. There's, there's this thing in Hollywood that a lot of the key roles for uh, features and television go to Brits and Australians and uh, Irish, whatever. And the Americans are producing a bunch of pretty boys, but uh, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Well, Australians are a lot like Texans. Right. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Australia. I've worked over there twice. I've visited there, I've surfed over there. Um, you know, I mean, English actors are brilliant. 
you know, they're, they're really well-trained and, and, and I, I like a lot of their work. There's certain things that, that the studios do that I disagree with. I mean, Osage, August Osage County had, I think three British actors in it. You know, it's a story about, you know, this family in the South, which I saw on Broadway twice. Who, and I just worked with Tracy Letts last year on the first season of Winning Time. And the thing I found offensive was like, I'm like, okay, so you got all these actors that aren't aren't Americans playing Americans. Yet if we go to England, they don't let us play English. Right? Right. So that bothers me in that regard. But, you know, in terms of like some of the stuff, a large majority of what these British actors and British stars have done are brilliant. But when they tried to, you know, and the movie didn't do well, didn't do nearly as well as the Pulitzer Prize winning play that it was. Uh, and Tracy won the Pulitzer for that. But I, you know, I, I, I always find it kind of interesting because they, they stunt cast. You know, let's get as many stars in this as possible, you know. And John directed it, who I worked with or worked for for on West Wing. Uh, but I think they missed the boat on that one. So, I mean, it happens. But I also think that you have, you know, some brilliant English actors, but you have a lot of brilliant American actors that aren't getting opportunities because of that, because of the star system. Well, let, let's talk about your beginnings. Um, your your first major performance was in a show, was in a TV miniseries, I believe, called The Chisholms. No, it was a miniseries, and then they, and CBS decided to turn it into a series. I got that role three weeks after I moved to Hollywood. I moved in September 5th, 1979, paying $172 a month for my apartment in Beechwood Canyon. That first week I met my managers who had signed me. They were John Travolta's manager, Lamont Zetter. The next week they got me an agent, Roe Diamond, a 20th century artist. And then the next week I had an audition. And they told me I wouldn't work for a year. They said, don't even think, you won't get a job. And I went to this audition and Mel Stewart, the director, said, I like this kid, he's done a lot of Shakespeare. And, which I had, <laughs> and um, I got hired. And I was on set with Robert Preston and Rosemary Harris and Donald Moffat, Ben Murphy and Victoria Racimo and Jimmy Van Patten and, and some interesting guys, you know, and it was like, it was a real learning experience for me. Um, um, you're, that you're, was my first gig. Now you're, you're asked to do some serious riding in that show. You're on horseback. Yeah, I know how to ride. So you, you, this was nothing new for you. No, I mean, I, I hadn't ridden since I was a kid. So it's a great story about they, they sent me out to this Wranglers ranch, you know, out like in Palm, like out towards like Sand Canyon, that area, Palmdale. And I get on a horse and they just, the guy was, he was really mean, the head Wrangler. He's like, Oh, you're not a ride. Okay. And he put me on this horse and I'm going around the arena and I'm bouncing all over the place and, not, you know, I, I, I rode actually a uh, polo pony in Texas. That's how I learned how to ride. So he finally sent out this guy, an old wrangler, who I'm sure is no longer with the same old deaf gene. That was his name, <laughs> old deaf gene. And he came out and he, he, he rode up next to me and he goes, you've ridden a horse before. And I said, yes, sir, I have, but I, I, this is a little alien to me. He said, take your feet out of the stirrups. So I took my feet out of the stirrups. And he goes, now just just walk and talk to me. So I started talking to him and he goes, look at you, you're riding a horse. He goes, now put your feet in the stirrup. He goes, now, now kick him. So then the horse started to gallop a little bit and he goes, just rock your hips. And, and I figured it out. And that was how I sort of regained my knowledge of horseback riding. 
And then eventually later, on a series called The Young Riders, Ben Johnson came to me and asked me if I would rope, team rope in his celebrity tournament, which was a PRCA uh, rodeo star with an actor. For kids. It was a charity for children with head injuries. So I didn't know how to rope. And so Bill Getzweiler, who was one of my friends on The Young Riders, who was a wrangler, had a ranch. And he said, well, come on out. And he put me in, a, in an arena with a donkey because donkeys will walk out of a trap loop because I was a healer and started roping a donkey. And then eventually I started roping steers with those guys. And then I went and did the first first uh, rodeo I went to. They didn't have what you call a barrier. Barriers are generally when you come out of the chutes, there's a certain area you can't start roping until you hit that barrier, but they had no barrier. So I was roping with, with um, what was his name? Moats. His brother and him were world champions. He goes out, that steer comes out of the chute. He ropes it and I double hock it. And then the, the, the steer popped one leg out of my loop. Had I not popped the leg, it would have been like four and a half seconds. I mean, it was world-class time. I mean, it was, you know, Bill was like, oh my God. He goes, but it was a five second penalty. So we didn't win. Oh, how but cool that, that? I started doing all that stuff and, and then when I did the Young Riders, I only did a season on the show, and then they let me and Melissa Leo go. And the, the Wranglers were so depressed because they said, "You're the only goddamn actor who knows how to ride on the show." So, you know, because I, I knew how to handle a horse. And it got to the point where they bring guest stars in, and Rose Lundine, who was her and her husband were the Wranglers, they go, they take some girl out there who'd never ridden out in the, you know, the prairie, and we were out in uh, Mescal, Arizona. She'd be screaming at the girl, and I'd ride up on my horse. And I said, "Rose, let me handle this." And I tell the girl, "Take her feet out of the out of the, out of the stirrups." And I said, "No, just talk to me." And we talk, and I go, "See, you're riding now. Now put your feet in the stirrups, and now let's just gallop a little bit." And I said, "You know, the horse is actually led by your ass and your legs, not by the stirrup, not by the, you know, what you think you're pulling on, you know, the lead ropes and stuff." So that's how I I really start to understand horseback riding. So um, you start working almost from the get-go in Hollywood. Um, it, sa it sounds like uh, you had a headwind and uh, you did not have a lot of gaps, but all actors have gaps. I mean, Oh, I had gaps. So <laughs> I had a lot of gaps. But, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is I did the Chisholms and I made all this money. And that was in 79, 80. And you know what was going on in Hollywood in 79, 80? A lot of partying. A lot of girls and i thought well this is easy so i kind of let my guard down and just was doing that i was partying and chasing chicks and um i couldn't get arrested for about eight months and my manager put me into a cold readings class and then i started booking commercials i did like a double mint commercial a budweiser commercial a coke commercial which kept my head afloat and then i got the thornbirds um and that was sort of the awakening for me in terms of like, if I want to be an artist, I have to focus on being an artist and not, you know, get into all the machinations of this industry and the party. And it's like, everyone always goes, Oh, do you go to those premieres? Do you do this? I go, I go to a premiere if I'm in it, but you know, those people you see out partying every night, they don't have a job. You have a job. You're going to bed fairly early. You go to work, you come home, you have dinner, you look at your script from the scenes for the next day, and then you go to sleep. And then you're up at 5 a.m. to get back to set at 5.30 or 6 or 4.30 to be there at 5. Like tomorrow, I have a late call. But generally, I mean, it's like 
you know, you have to be ready. And I'm, I'm one of those actors that likes preparation and I don't, I can't sleep if I don't know my lines. I don't know what I'm going to do, the ideas I have for the scene. I can't do it. Then I watch other actors who show up and they grab the sides and they go to makeup and they start learning their lines right there. And I was like, I, I, I couldn't do that because my background's the theater, you know, doing Shakespeare and doing, you know, Chekhov and doing shows that you really had to know what you were doing in order to produce a good performance. So that's my moment. Well, I have to tell you, even though you you have a fairly small part, it's a very strategic part. Um, I've probably seen Apollo 13 uh, 60 times. I mean, every time it seems to stream onto, onto, uh, on one of the streaming networks, I have to stop because it's one of the most compelling movies I've ever seen in my life. Now, you, uh, you have a huge feature, uh, TV resume. You don't make a lot of features. You do make features, but this was a pretty high-profile feature for you. How did you get involved in that? I... Um... My agent at Gersh, when I was with the Gersh agency, called and said, you had this appointment. Now, what Ron was doing then, because he he was casting all the guys in Mission Control, right? right. So I go in with this other actor, and he's already seen my uh, my, my audition tape, right? Because they, they filmed me the first time I went in for the casting company. And um, Ron immediately goes, so you're from Texas? And I said, yes, sir, I'm from Houston. He said, you know, my brother knows everything about every NASA mission there's ever been. You know, we, we used to watch the, you know, the missiles take off, you know, and, and it was, and, and so, you know, and he and I ended up talking the whole time. And then I left. We hardly talked to the other actor. And then my wife, Michelle Little, went in for a part. And she was sitting there and she was looking on the wall and there was my picture right above Ron's head. And she, and, and she starts to kind of giggle and Ron said, what's so funny? And she goes, well, that's my husband right there. And he goes, oh, he's going to be in my movie. And that's how I found out I was cast. <laughs> and then I've been with my wife now. We've been together seven, 30, 38 years. That's the only time in all the years we've been together, she was kind of weird about it. You know, she kind of got a little jealous that because she didn't get the call for another three days that she got cast. But, you know, she and I ended up both being in that. My best friend, Andy Lipschultz, was a unit publicist. I mean, Xander Berkeley, all these guys that were friends of mine were in the movie. So it was really cool. Bill Paxton, one of my old friends, God bless his soul. Um, and I got to know Tom. So then cut to... After Apollo, I get a phone call from Tom Hanks saying, I'm doing this miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon for HBO, and I'd like you to play Dave Scott. And Dave Scott was our technical advisor on Apollo 13. And he's the only astronaut that was six feet tall. I'm six three. And he said, how would you like to play Dave? And I went, I'm in. What's the deal? And he goes, I just got to warn you, everyone's making double scale. Um, I can't pay any more than that. But I said, Tom, I'm in. And that's, I was on that. And one day we were shooting in Borrego Springs because we shot almost everything in Orlando or Cape Canaveral in Florida. But we came back for my episode, the one main, like my big episode. And this actor was standing there and he started poking me in the back. And I finally turned and I said, what's your fucking problem? He goes, do you remember me? And I went, yeah. And he goes, he goes yeah, I was in that audition with you with Ron. And I went, yeah. And he goes, and he asked you about Houston and you just went off and you just talked to Ron the entire time. I didn't say a word at all. And I went, 
oh, I was supposed to say, hey, Ron, thank you for your time, but you should talk to this guy now. I said, I want to be in the fucking movie, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And I cannot remember his name, which is unfortunate because he's a really wonderful actor and he's actually uh, directing a lot now. Uh, but he's a good guy. And, and it was, it was, look, being on that show, Apollo 13 was probably one of my biggest learning experiences in terms of working in film. Cause I hadn't done a lot. I'd done a few films at that point. And then I, I remember I got a call from my agent saying, you have this audition. Well, actually I'll cut back to that. I got a phone call from my childhood friend, Dennis Quaid, who said he was in like, I don't know, Romania or somewhere doing this movie about a mercenary that his friend Gaga was directing. And he goes, how you doing? And he's on a satellite phone. I said, well, I've been trying to get into that, that movie you're doing to audition for this character. And he goes, well, you'd be perfect for Jamie Johnson. Or J- it was Jamie Johnson. And I go, well, I can't get in. And he goes, well, you're better than the actor they want because he's got to be able to be a guy I think could steal my wife from me who's Julia Roberts. And I said, so he goes, I'm calling Callie Corey and uh, Lassa Holstrom. And the next day I get a call saying, you have an audition on Friday at noon. And I went to Ron Howard and I was shooting that day. And I said, I, I've got this audition for Lassa Holstrom for this movie. And, I, you know, obviously I'm committed to you. And he goes, Brad, I'll get you out by 12. Cause I, we were, Universe, I go to Warner Brothers, and he goes, "I'll get you out, and if I can't get you out, I'll call Lawson myself and tell him you're running a little late." He eventually got me out, and I went and auditioned, and then I got a call saying Lawson wanted me to come to the Bel Air Hotel to film me with his personal video camera, which made me kind of think, "Oh, wait a minute, I'm going to this guy's hotel room," and I did. It was all in the up and up, and he just wanted to film me. I think it was actually for Julia. So she could kind of get a sense of who I was because she later told me she had seen me in television shows and stuff over the years. And I got cast. So I finished Apollo 13, went straight to South Carolina and Buford and shot something to talk about. And that was sort of the beginning of my feature career. I mean, I did a movie in 1984 that we won't don't want to talk about. That's so horrible that the president, he was the guy that directed uh, Chariot the Fire, looked at the film and went, not on my watch. <laughs> so getting back to apollo 13 um you guys are the your role is pretty much in on one set you're on the big cap capcom set i mean it's is that it you well, we had well, there were a couple of scenes in other places the party in the opening i was at and when all the astronauts are there when um armstrong sets foot on the moon at the beginning me and Michelle were in those scenes and I had a couple of two or three scenes outside of the stage, but for the most part, I think we were on stage eight at Universal, and which is the, the, the Mission Control set. So t- tell me a little bit about that set. Obviously, it, it looks very detailed. I'll tell you how detailed it was. Uh, Jerry, there were the two Jerry's that were the technical advisors, the actual guys in Mission Control on that mission. And at one point, uh, God, I'm thinking Jerry's last name. His son's a big producer. But I said, you know, Jerry said, let's grab a cup of coffee. And we walk off set and he opens the door and it's, you know, it goes to nowhere. And he goes, oh, I go, what are you doing? And he goes, 
well, this is where the coffee room is. And I went, no, 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 this is a set. And he goes, it's so realistic. It's so like it was because they copied it exactly. And I said, let's go to craft service. And we went to craft service. <laughs> but that it fooled him. You know, that's how. And then later I was down in, um, I think when they were shooting in NASA, when they were doing the vomit comet with the actors, I went and Jerry called me and uh, said, come on, let's, let's go. I want to take on a tour. And he took me in the actual room. And it was astounding how, like, I, I fit right in. I mean, they gave me a, like, a, a plaque or a piece of paper that I framed that said, I could actually do this. I was trained well enough because I learned all the information and the, the language in order to speak to, to the astronauts. Because they were bad. The, the Capcom was the backup astronaut to Apollo 13. Right. Like, the fact that Kevin Costner... I mean, uh, Kevin Bacon, you know, Gary Sinise can't go because they think he has measles and they bring in Kevin Bacon. He was part of my team. We were the backup crew. Because at one point they had me costumed up in a white shirt and a tie, like all, everyone's wearing in Mission Control. And then Rita Ryak, the, the costumer, comes up and goes, oh, my God. And I go, what? And she goes, come with me. And she takes me to the wardrobe trailer and she goes, you're not you're not part of Mission Control. You're You're the backup crew. That's who the Capcoms are. And I went, oh, and she goes, and you don't want to wear these shirts because Tom and Kevin and everyone said no. And I said, why? And she goes, well, they're bright yellow, they're pink, they're strange color brown. And I said, I'll wear those. She said, you will. And I said, I'm in a room with 50 guys all wearing the same clothes. I said, if I'm wearing a pink like shirt or a brown shirt or a you know yellow shirt, I'm going to stand out. So she said, I love you. And, and I, you know, Rita, Rita, I've stayed friends with her. She's a wonderful, brilliant Academy Award winning costumer. So it was fun. It was a really incredible experience. I love Ron Howard. He's such a good guy and such a straightforward kind of guy. I mean, one day he came to me and he said, go home tonight. Cause we had the real, it was like about that thick, right? It was like, 10 inches or eight inches, the air to ground manual of the actual mission. You have all the dialogue, everything that the guys said to each other from Mitch control to the astronauts. And he goes, find the area where they have to figure out the CO2 cartridge and how to create that so that the three of them could live in the limb. So I went home that night and I found about four and a half pages that I thought were pretty solid. So I come back the next day and I hand it to Ron and he goes, oh yeah, that's good. No, that won't work. That won't work. That's good. That won't work. Yeah. And he goes through, hands it back. It's about a page and a half of like all technical speak, right? It's not, it's not like dialogue. It's like technical stuff that I'm telling these guys what to do. And he goes, let's do this. And I said, when? And he goes, oh, about 20 minutes. I was like, Ron, I don't know this. And he goes, figure it out. So I sat down and wrote every line down with a mathematical equation. And if you watch the movie, you'll see me. I'm looking down. I go, yeah, Houston, you got to do this thing. And, and, and then you got to do this. And, you know, it was all written down on my console where I'm sitting so that I could, you know, it was like a Brando thing. You know, it was like I cheated. But you can't tell. But it was the only way I could do the scene because I couldn't memorize that stuff in 20 minutes. The... Uh... <clears throat> the critical moment in the movie when the um the apollo 13 gets into trouble tom hanks calls up and says uh 
uh, Houston, we have a problem. He's talking to you now. When you're yeah. when you're uh, responding to him, were you hit? Were you hearing? Had Hanks already recorded that, or was it just somebody on the set doing it with you? No, Tom, Kevin, and 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 Bill were in another room for the was it eight weeks that we shot Mission Control. They sat there and, and did. You know, we were all in a loop so we could talk. You know, it was like funny stuff happened because we'd be between takes and some the guys would start talking about the cars they drive and stuff. And someone finally goes, hey, Tom, what kind of car are you driving? And he goes, what do you mean? I drive a minivan. I got kids. Are we kidding me? <laughs> it's like, but they were just in another room. They were like on stage so that they were there for us. And then when we went, when we wrapped and they went to the capsule, which they were shooting, Ron asked me to come in and, and do it, which I did the voice for about, I think, two and a half weeks. And then he pulled me aside one day and he goes, look, I don't want you to be offended. And I said, about what? And he goes, there's so many great actors on this movie that worked in Mission Control that didn't have a lot to do. And they also want to be involved. Would you mind if I let them come in and do you and talk to the astronauts? And I said, well, you're not going to use their voice. He goes, no, it's just their ability to be involved. And I said, of course, that's great. Because I wasn't getting paid anymore. I was just doing it out of the goodness of my heart because I wanted to be a part of the project. You know, and they were there for me, so I wanted to be there for them. And so I went to Bill and Tom and Kevin. I said, you guys mind? And they said, no, it's cool, Brett. So those guys started coming in and doing my lines. But they don't appear in the final film? Their voices don't know because that's no, me doing it. That's you doing it, of course. We already shot my stuff. I was just do doing it for them. So, you know, as my friend William Hurt, God bless his soul, used to say is off-camera work is more important than on-camera work. You know, an actor has to bring it. It's not just what you put on camera. It's what you give to your other actors. Of course. Of course. I mean, I learned a lot from Bill. Bill's, I love that guy so much. And he's gone now but he was so brilliant now to keep a bunch of actors intensely involved in the all of the uh mission control center for weeks upon a time was there anything special that ron would do to keep you in the game because obviously you can be distracted very easily i got two stories for you one i called the actual guy and i talked to him for about two hours on the phone he lives in michigan he's a farmer now and there goes my bug, the pug. Barking. What's the pug's name? Bug the pug. Bug the pug. Bug, yes. <laughs> bug, stop it. My daughter may be coming home. I don't know. Anyhow, um, hold on. Bug, come here. I don't know. It must be hard. She's scratching at the door. Um, story, um, two so stories. Two stories. You called the original guy. I called the original guy and talked to him, and I actually said to him, I said, look, your friends who you trained with were up there in space. Did you ever have a moment where you went out and, like, fell apart in the car? You know, the stress of, like, the concept of them being able to come home was, as, 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 as Ed Harris' character says at one point, the guy says, this is a dismal failure. And he turns and he goes, no, this is NASA's greatest moment because they managed to bring those men home with no electricity, very little oxygen, uh, you know, freezing their ass off. And they, they, they got them home. So I asked him, I said, did you have any moments where you like went out and like 
kicked the car, kicked tires, sat in your car and cried or like freaked out. And he said, no, that's not how we're trained. We have a problem. Let's fix it. That's what you do. We know the results. We know there's a chance that we're not going to come back because that's how we're trained. So no, that never occurred. So I went, oh, and the other <laughs> in relationship to Ron, he didn't have to do that because we were all engaged hundred percent. But one day, I knew I I'd met Ed because I'd worked with Amy Madigan, his wife. And I saw Ed do Fool for Love before I knew who he was on Broadway and was like, who the hell is this guy? So good. So I'm sitting there and the, it was one of those days with one of those big crane shots that comes around and goes everything and eventually ends up on, you know, Chris Franz, you know, uh, I think that's Ed's character's name. And he... Gene Franz. Huh? Gene Franz? Gene Franz. Yeah, Gene. Yeah, he played Gene. So he's the set, you know, we were cruising along and everyone got kind of lackadaisical. And Ed's an intense guy. And he's sitting there and all of a sudden he just stands up and he slams his hand down on the desk. and says, can we goddamn shoot this thing? And Ron goes, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's roll. And we nail it. And Ed was brilliant. And they said, do you want another one? And, Tom, and Ron goes, no, I think we got it. That was great. And Ed sat back in his chair and he's like kind of catty corner behind me a little bit where his, his console was. And so I looked over at him and he's got a camel cigarette, non-filter, and he's packing it on his thumb, puts it in his mouth and lights it. And I look at him kind of like, what the fuck was that? And he goes, <laughs> and he kind of laughs. <laughs> and he knew what he was doing. He was getting the, the crew focused on a big moment and he didn't want to waste any more time and he brought it a hundred thousand percent and killed it and and then another time him and ron were having a difference of opinion about a particular scene how he reacted and there's a great thing about ron howard that you know as a director i mean i respect that man with all my heart and if you have a disagreement with him he'll listen to anything you have to say but if he says but you're going to do it his way. And so he said, Ed kept saying, I, I just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right to me. And then finally Ron says, okay, well, let's do it your way, but I want you to give me a take my way. And Ron and, and, and Ed said, okay. And they did it. And that was one of the lessons I learned. I went up to, to Ed later. We were outside. I think I was having a cigarette with him. And I said, well, what was that all about? Because Brett, the one thing they can't do is when you say it doesn't feel right, there's no argument to that. There's no like, well, you know, you got to use this as a, it doesn't feel right. And so I learned that, which is if something really didn't feel right to me as an actor that a director wanted me to do, I just say it doesn't feel right. I can't do that. And then they have to make an adjustment based on how you feel. But that was my big lesson from Ed. And Ron was just, brilliant to be around he's so smart and so so on top of it and knows exactly what he wants and i have more respect for him than you know him and chris nolan and, and my friend howie deutsch who i love working with as well but those two guys really have an idea of what they're doing what they want to what they want on film what the cuts are how they're going to tell the story and ron is that guy 
I mean, I just watched the other night. Uh, Andy, my best friend, told me to watch that movie he did about the uh, the tight soccer team that was trapped in the cavern in the cave. Oh, right, right, of course. So, and it's like Apollo 13. You know the outcome. But at the end, I had a friend that wouldn't go see Apollo 13, one of my best friends. He's still a photographer. And he actually worked on Apollo for a brief period of time when they shot out and uh, they shot Point Doom where the, the capsule comes down finally in the water at the very end. And he, I said, have you seen it? And he goes, no, nah, I know it. I know what the ending is. And I said, go see it, Mike. Go, please go see it. And he called me up the next day and he went, oh, my God. I was crying my head off, <laughs> screaming and yelling and, like, so excited. And I went, I know. Even though you know the ending doesn't mean it can't be moving. And um, it was. It was a beautiful film. And one of the films that I'm so proud of be. People ask me what my favorite film was. Because was, my wife and I did it together. That was great. My best friend was a unit publicist, and he still is my best friend, Andy. And all the actors that worked on that, I knew. And I got and I developed a relationship with Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton was an old friend of mine. So it was really lovely just to be doing a show with people who I loved, who I respected, who I cared about, and who brought a thousand percent to the project. Michelle played what character in the movie? She was the blonde that was in the house all the time with Kathleen Quinlan. Oh, okay. her her character, her husband. Uh, what was his character's name? Was it? She was an astronaut's wife. Got it. I mean, she worked longer on it than I did, but the women's roles got cut out a lot, except for Kathleen Quinlan, because it was more about the men in mission control and the astronauts who were lost in space. Tell me about the premiere. First time, uh, first time you see the movie. <laughs> we had, my wife got pregnant on Apollo 13. My daughter, Harper, who just came in. Uh, that was 27 years ago. And she was a bald baby. She didn't have hair for about four months. And Ron, and because Michelle had just had the baby, we sat in the very back. We were at Brahmins. You know, they had those little kind of uh, for lack of a better word, areas that are off to the side where you can sit. It's sort of like a private sitting area. We're sitting there and Ron comes in at the very end. I go, Ronnie. And he turns around. I go, hey, man, we had our baby. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. She's bald as a cubal. What were you doing nine months ago? <laughs> and he goes, hey, that's funny, Brett. And then he walked off. Uh, but it was, you know, like I said, you know, I worked with uh, Gene Simmons on, in Apollo on, and in the Thornbirds. She played my mother. I worked with uh, Rosemary Harris on my very first series. And both of them said they never really saw the work that they did. And I said, why? And they said, because they hold on to the joy of what they did on set. Because then some guys get hold of it or women. They cut it, they edit it, they do all this stuff. And she goes, and it's not the same as what I felt when I did the scene. And she goes, it doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is the work itself. And I've kind of held on to that. I like to see the shows that I've done. I do go to the premieres, but I, I you know, it's it's really kind of like Michelle asked Ron, because when we first got together, we used to watch the Andy Griffith show. We get up in the morning, have coffee, and we turn it on. I'm like, I don't know what channel it was. And Ron was just a little kid. And she asked him, she goes, do you remember this episode? Do you remember that? He goes, 
you know, I really don't remember those episodes. Or I remember about that because I was such a child that is that was the episode my father bought me a bike, or that was the episode I got my first glove to play baseball, or that was the episode where, you know, I fell and hurt my knee. Um, so it's an interesting, you know, like you think of a child having those memories, and it was more about what happened in their lives versus what happened on film. And as an actor, I always find it more interesting what happens in the creative process. You know, and, and look, editors post-production sound guys are brilliant and they have to put it all together and make it work based on the director and the producer's you know vision but as an actor you hold on to what you did it's you know it's interesting there are perfect movies out there there are a few not uh-huh. a lot and i would have to say apollo 13 is a perfect movie there's no dry spots there's no nothing off off kilter it just seems like it drives at its own force and everybody just turns in great work i would say it's one of the great movies i would agree with you i mean there's a a few movies i think are i mean i think witness is one of the greatest movies ever made you know there's not you know some people i've been you know william goldman's script is, is the epitome of the perfect script um godfather but then i even go farther back i'm a john ford freak i mean the man who shot liberty valance is one of my favorite movies um what's the movie with john wayne and uh searchers yeah the searchers it's it's dated a little bit but still it's the first movie ever made in hollywood about prejudice you know he was going to kill his niece because it took so long to find her now she was a savage until he finds her and he can't can't hurt her beautiful it's like john ford in my mind is like you ask coppola you ask spielberg you ask any of those guys who their greatest influence was and all of them will say john ford john ford i i think you know i mean obviously orson wells what he did you know and i saw that movie and i was like what's the big deal and they're like look at the lighting look at what he did he's the first guy to put a camera and dug a hole on a stage and put the camera so it's shooting up you know, he did stuff and he used natural lighting and he did stuff and he shot in shadows, which they didn't do back then. It was all Panavision and like big cinemascope, you know, and then he came in and did this thing that changed the way we shot films. So, you know, there's certain directors out there in the history of our industry that have altered how we approach the, the product. Well, Liberty Valance is also one of my favorites. Um, Jimmy Stewart's decide he's cashing in and he's not going to run for office and Wayne grabs him and says, uh, besides, you didn't kill Liberty Valance. Right, I know. (laughs) Think back, Pilgrim. You were walking out of the saloon. Think back, Pilgrim. (laughs) You were standing there like the greenhorn you were. (laughs) uh, Brett, did you ever get to meet Wayne? Yep. When I was eight years old. Really? Yeah. They did a movie, uh, The Red Adair Story, Firefighters. Uh, Hellfighters. Hellfire. Hellfighters. Hellfighters. And my father helped them. They shot in Texas. And they shot down in Baytown for like Thailand. They shot shot at the Cullen Building. See, the history of my family, my father's family is a very, one of the four biggest oil families in Texas. And in Houston, they have the Cullen Building, which is like a big deal. And he, he managed... 
him with his friend Fred Nahas, I think his name was, they got all these locations for the film. And so he used to go fishing with with the Duke on Fred Nahas's, you know, big boat out in the Gulf of Mexico. And he let me out on a Friday and said, You're coming to set with me. I want to introduce you to the Duke. And so it was it was wonderful and disappointing at the same time. <laughs> so I go. And they're supposed to be in Thailand there in Baytown. There's all those sort of things on stilts. You go upstairs, you know, because it's supposed to be Thailand. And, and this is when Wayne had had one of his lungs removed and he chewed tobacco back then. And I heard this man run up the stairs and go, uh, Duke, we need you on set. And you hear this coughing and then this big wad of tobacco comes shooting out of the door, lands right at my feet, you know, red man. <laughs> and I look at that. And then John Wayne comes down the steps and he looks at my dad and he goes, Cullen, Cullen, how you doing? And he goes, Duke, I'd like to introduce you to my youngest son. This is Brett. He goes, well, how you doing, little fella? And I said, I'm pretty good, Mr. Wayne. I, I, could I possibly ask you for an autograph? He goes, oh, I'll give you an autograph, fella, little boy. And he pulls out a memograph, like, like a little fucking card that was pre-signed. And I was so disappointed because he didn't say to Brett. It was just John Wayne. And I was like, damn, that's disappointing. And I remember that. Um, but he he was an iconic individual. I mean, obviously, I've read every book on him. And one of the books I read recently, because Brent Spiner told me I should play him, to do a play about him, like a one-man show. And um, I could see it. I could see you doing it. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting about the book was, you know, he worked with some very liberal actors because he was very conservative, didn't fight in Vietnam. But, you know, he went he did some crazy stuff. He went out with them on 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 like take the units would go out and he'd go with them. And they'd be under fire. I think, I think he was very disappointed that he couldn't serve in World War Two. I think there were some things going on at that time that uh, prevented him from serving. And I think there was. I mean, I think he was in college, actually, at USC. But my father served. He served in the Pacific for three years and then was honorably discharged. But, um, you know, I think John Wayne's an interesting guy because, you know, in the books, they talk about all these liberal actors he worked with. And they're like, oh, he must have been awful. They went, no, he listened to me. You know, he didn't necessarily agree with me. He didn't shut me down and say, shut up. You don't know, what you're, you know, like and today how people talk to each other in politics but he was a an interesting guy i i don't agree with his policy or what he believes america should be i think america's more diverse than what he thought it was you know it wasn't it, back then it was kind of a white man's country and yet he was he was in a lot of movies where native americans were portrayed with dignity you know one mm -hmm. of my favorite films of his was his the first of his uh, cavalry trilogy, Fort Apache, yep. where he plays uh, Kirby York, the uh, the captain. Henry Fonda plays the heavy in that movie because he's just out for glory, and uh, it's just uh, the relationship between York and Cochise. Yeah, you know, may have been a little fanciful because uh, there weren't these real meetings in real life, but it had it portrayed the Native Americans with dignity. Most of Ford's movies. Do not treat the Indians like, uh, you know, like they're, um, you know, fodder for just shooting. Right. Well, that's also what we wanted to see back then. You know, it's like 
I did that movie 42, right? About Jackie Robinson. Right. And everyone said, oh my God, you're such a racist. Because, you know, Harrison Ford chews me out when I use the N-word, Colin. You know, I said, well, you know, Mr. Ricky, he's still a, you know, the N-word. And he gives me this brutal uh, <laughs> beatdown, basically, saying, if you can't do this, I'll get someone else. Uh, I never want to hear you use that word again kind of thing. And <clears throat> everyone said that to me. And, you know, back then, all white people were racist. <laughs> it's like, I hate to say it, but, you know, black people didn't have the right to vote. They weren't respected. They weren't treated equally. There was a Negro League. I mean, the fact that Jackie Robinson was chosen, even though he wasn't the best player in the Negro League, but he was the best player to be the first guy. Because, you know, Ricky went to him and said, you went to UCLA, you played with white players, you need to turn the other cheek. And he did. And he was brilliant. And even though he wasn't the best Negro uh, league player, still better than almost anybody who was white. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, everything's changed now. But I, I like the idea of you doing a one-man John Wayne show. That sounds interesting. Because I'm looking at you right now, and you uh, you have some shared uh, elements of Wayne in you, I think. Well, yeah, I got, uh, yeah, I got that right, Pilgrim. <laughs> Oh, Dookie! I'll get up against a wagon wheel. Remember that that thing that that DJ did with him and Walter Brennan? Yes, I, I, I a couple. Oh, Dookie! Oh, Dookie! I heard. <laughs> I used up a little a little bear grease here. Oh, Dookie! <laughs> yeah, the, we will. I think think uh, there are a few women listening. I won't, I don't think we'll repeat that one. But yeah, please don't. I mean, it's just something that I heard <laughs> once that I thought was hysterically funny. Oh, very. He funny. was making fun of that genre. No, no, um, so true. So to Walter Brennan was such a character, too. Now, you also uh, got a chance to play Bruce Wayne's father in Joker, correct? Yes, I did. How did that part come apart? Come about? That's an interesting. I, where I'm sitting right now, right here, which you can't see, this is where I, I shot the, the, uh, the audition with my wife on my iPad. And I did it once, and she went, that's fucking brilliant. And I went, no, we got to do it again. We did it again. She goes, still, it's fucking brilliant. Send this in. So I sent it in. And I was doing True Detective in Arkansas. True Detective 3, the third one. Right. With Mahershala Ali and uh, Stephen Dorff. And I get a call saying, and I was in LA. I, I kind of came back and forth a few times. I was there for four months. And they get a call saying, Todd Phillips wants to meet you. And he wants to meet you at 11 o'clock on Monday. And I said, I can't do that. They said, why? And I said, I have a flight at one o'clock to fly back to Arkansas to go back and shoot. I said, I can do 10. So they call and then he goes, yeah, he'll do 10. So I show up at 930. Michelle's at Warner Brothers. She's sitting in the car with my luggage. I knew I had to go straight to the airport. And I go in and I... <clears throat> I'm sitting there and Todd comes in. And he goes, oh, am I late? I went, no, 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 I'm early. And he goes, okay, let me get some coffee and then I'll have you in the office. So I, I wait and he gets his coffee and we go in his office and we start talking. And I tell him what I'm doing. He goes, oh, tell Nick hello because he's a big fan of Nick who, you know, created, you know, the, the detective show, uh, True Detective. So I said, okay. And he goes, well, let's, can you read the scene for me? And I said, sure. So I do the same thing I did before. 
said, that was great. And I said, well, thank you. And he goes, all right, well, you got to catch a flight. And I go, yeah. And I said, all right, I'll see you later. And I leave. About, and I hear this later, Todd tells me the story, but about a week later, I get a, I see something on deadline that Alec Baldwin is cast in the movie. And I thought, okay, the star game just happened. Right? They're going to go with a bigger star. And I'm there, and then I get a phone call saying, you've just been offered this part. And I'm like, well, and so I, I, have, I finish True Detective. I fly to New York to do hair and makeup tests. And I do those. And then they say, Todd wants to see you on set. And they're shooting at this bank in Brooklyn, I think it was. So I go there, and they're finished shooting the scene. And, you know, Joaquin goes over by himself. You know, I was going to say hi. And Todd said, don't do that. He doesn't chit-chat on set. I said, oh, okay. He goes, I wanted you to come over here so I could tell you the story. I said, what's the story? And he goes, you came in and you killed it. And you were my first choice. But then I get a call from Alec Baldwin who says, I'm friends with Bobby De Niro. You're shooting in New York. I live in New York. I want to be a part of this movie. He goes, there's only one part available. And it's Thomas Wayne. And he goes, well, let me read the script. So he sends it and he reads it. And he goes, I'll do this. So they make the deal. The next day, Deadline posts an article by somebody. I, I, this is the story I heard. I, this is not, I'm not standing by this as fact. But that this guy posted that Alec Baldwin is going to play Thomas Wayne a la Trump. And Alec got really angry and called Todd and said, I'm not fucking doing your movie. And he called casting. And this is what Todd told me. And he said, call Brett. He was my first choice. So that's how I got the part. So the actual, the press actually helped you there for a change. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, again, so, you know, know, and I got to work with Todd, who I think is pretty fucking amazing director. And um, we got along very well. Um, and I think it's, well, obviously the film is, the only it's the highest grossing r-rated film in the history of movies and it wasn't sold to china had it been sold to china it would have probably made i mean we made over a billion dollars it probably made two billion unbelievable i know it's great, crazy great, great credit for you well we've been listening to the very very charismatic brett cullen who hopefully will soon be playing john wayne near you in a theater <laughs> hopefully and uh just a great, great listening to you, Brad. And, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about Apollo and John Ford and, and the early days. By, by the way, what did your family think of you becoming an actor? Did they give you support or was it a little bit offbeat for them? Well, I'm the only one in my family that d jumped into this world. So my mother, when I was in college, kept saying, don't you want to take some business classes? And I was like, no. And she goes, well, you might have something to fall back on. And I said, I don't want anything to fall back on. Because if I have something to fall back on, I'll fall back on it. I don't, I, I want to, I'll give myself 10 years. And if I don't succeed in some manner, I'll choose another craft or another job, another avenue to make a living. But you know, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that, you know, I had great representation and I was driven. And mind you, the first 10 years of my career, I look back on it. I'm, I'm, I sort of cringe because I hadn't really understood what I was doing. And then I worked with Kim Stanley, who actually brought when I was doing Falcon Crest. She actually made me change the way I worked. 
you know, I had Cecil's structure and then she brought the heart to it. And then I combined the two. And I mean, I'm still, I, you know, I'm 66 and I'm still working. I'm doing, you know, by the way, if you guys haven't seen it, watch Winning Time, the first season. We're shooting the second season now. It's brilliant. But the whole point of that was that I, I, I never understood the wonder of acting. So many people don't talk about that, but there's this thing about an actor has to wonder, you know, it's like, what do you do? Why do you do it? It's more about the why than anything. And, and, and it's just the, the joy of creating a three-dimensional person that you believe, that you forget that you're watching Brett Cullen that you actually go, oh my God, I'm, I'm so involved and so immersed in this role that people go, yeah, you know, and that's, that's, and I'm 60. And like I said, I still think I'm 23 and I'm still learning. And I think that's one of the reasons why I keep working. Cause I, I've never settled. I never sat back and thought I was important. I never thought I sat back and, and thought, you know, to me, I'm a crew guy. I'd rather hang out with a crew because they support me. And they understand what I do and how I'm working and they, and they appreciate what I do. But, you know, I've never been that guy that thought he was special. I just, I'm so appreciative that people keep hiring me and that they want to see me work. And to me, that's uh, a blessing. Well, and we're, I all, we're, all, we're all the richer for it, Brett. And glad, I'm glad you're still out there carrying the flag. Everybody, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Ben Shrewsbury's our producer. We've been listening to actor Brett Cullen. And yes, tune in to the second season of Winning Time. If you don't even have to be a Lakers fan to enjoy this series, which is just so much fun. And uh, thanks, Brett, for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'll talk to you soon, all right? Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.